Well, it's that time of the day. This is Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church and senior partner at Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions I share are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. So Don couldn't be with us today. He is vacationing with his family, getting some much needed R&R. So we wish him well and relaxation as we dive into our conversation today. So we have a grab bag episode for you. Again, our grab bag episodes are when we're so much stuff going on around us. And as you know, we this is modeled after just having a conversations with friends in the front room, maybe with some lemonade, watching the sunset. This, uh, there, there isn't enough there's too much stuff to talk about. <laughs> and so we can't just, just talk about one thing. All the things are constantly affecting us. And so this is going to be a grab bag episode that covers quite a few topics. Um, and so as a group, uh, today, there's a lot of things that are, are centered around how we treat our, not just our citizens here in the United States, but in particular, um, as we look at the treatment of BIPOC folks, what is our role? How is our society treating us? And of course, and you ask that question, there are a lot of things that tend to come up. So I, I first, I want to throw this your way, especially as we talk about treatment. We've there's there's all these TikToks and videos around uh, how uh, people are treated, the suspected suspicion, particularly as it relates to Black, Brown, and Indigenous men. And we've got all these videos of folks, quote unquote, standing up as citizens and calling the cops on innocent, regular folks. Well. We have another one. A black pastor in Alabama was was uh, ran into one of these uh, moments of suspicion as he was asked to water a neighbor's lawn. And of course, the police were called on him. Now, you know, this may seem regular or innocuous to some folks. Hey, it's just going to be a misunderstanding. However, um, when we don't, quote unquote, comply the way we are, are, even if we're legally within our rights to do so, get harassed in ways that our other other peers do not. Y'all, have you seen this video or this article? I've seen the article. I haven't seen, I haven't watched the video just because I hate having to witness those sorts of things, right? I mean, we saw this not too long ago with um, a military, um, a black military official who was pulled over um, and was questioned in, in, in ways that like I've never seen uh, a cop question like my white husband. Right. Um, and, and in this situation, it's always, you know, give us your identification, show us, like, prove to us who you are because he says he's a pastor. They didn't believe him or that he said that, you know, I'm I was asked to look after their house while they're gone. And somehow that's that's not believable to, to the police. And I, I don't understand. I, you know, that that really confuses me because. There are a lot of times when, when me and my husband are out of town and we ask our neighbors to look after our house, grab our packages, you know, um, th- those sorts of things. And I would hate for anybody to to be approached this way when I've asked them to care for my home while I'm away. You know, the very act of having the proof that you live in your own neighborhood is just so offensive to f- to me, um, but I'm not a black man, nor am I an indigenous uh, person, you know, held to a higher level of scrutiny. 
And when the officers asked this pastor for his proof, you know, his ID, the pastor's my understanding said, I, you know, I'm not, I don't need to, right? I mean, I live across the street and he's pointing to his home, literally across the street, broad daylight, watering his his neighbor's uh, garden. And still that is insufficient. There's a default criminality mindset that's attached to various members of our com- of our community, black men in particular, and, and our indigenous brothers and sisters, and certainly uh, black youth and, and heck, black women. Um, but what what is the crime here, right? Like in my situation, I've asked my neighbors to grab packages that might look like a package thief, right? But in this situation, he's literally watering the flowers. Like what is the crime he is committing? Well, private and, property, and let's, let's, trespassing on, tri- um, on someone else's private property, if that. But that would be the homeowner's complaint. It wouldn't be the neighbor's complaint. I was well. See, and mm. here's the thing. Um, oftentimes, and, and let's let's talk a little bit about the, about the specifics here, because oftentimes when these situations happen, you know, and I've talked to many officers in in doing some reconciliation work, and and there's often a setup that comes before the officer gets there because they got called here. And, you know, as you get that information on the other side of their call, you know, they, they talk about oftentimes getting 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 there and realizing that the situation is very or, or, you know, kind of understanding and recognizing the pattern of suspicion that starts with the neighborhood itself, as you spoke to earlier, Luz. But I, I want to just 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 give, you know, uh, he was uh, as the officer gets there and asks him what he's doing. He says, I'm supposed to be here. His his direct quote from the body cam footage is I'm supposed to be here. I'm Pastor Jennings. I live across the street. To which the officer says, you're Pastor Jennings? And Jennings responds, yes, I'm looking after their house where they're gone, looking after their flowers. And so then the officer begins to try to get uh, Mr. Jennings' identification, to which he says, no, (laughs) I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, Mm -hmm. whatever, dude. Mm -hmm. And when he takes out his phone... That's uh, less than a minute later, as he takes, tries to make a call on his phone, the officers handcuff him at the body camera footage shows, and he's told that he's being arrested for obstructing governmental operations. But the charges were later dropped after the arrest was already there. His wife tries to come out and interfere and, and identify him as well, um, but the police tell her that once we place him under arrest, we can't unarrest him. Huh. You know, this is very similar to what um, I worked on. I'm going to date myself now, folks. Back in 2006, uh, when I worked for then Mayor Chris Coleman, Mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota, and we had been approached by a community leader uh, at that point, Nakima Levy-Pounds, who was not very well known, but certainly has uh, gained national and international attention since then. Uh, in her uh, different roles that she's had in community. But at that point, the complaint was that there was a disproportionate number of uh, black men being arrested for what's called OLP, obstruction of legal process, which is pretty much the same charge that this pastor was arrested for. And um, she approached our office with that complaint and the city attorney's office And to Mayor Coleman's credit at that point, then uh, we created a task force. And I was there initially to represent the mayor's uh, office and and position. City attorney was there, John Choi. Nikima was there. NAACP St. Paul was there. St. Paul Police was there. So on and so forth. And in those conversations, 
in, in this task force, we saw the data and the data was didn't lie. The data, in fact, um, reinforced what Nakima was uh, sharing with us. And no one had taken, taken the time or the effort to look at it. Long story short, I ended up playing a mediation role there. I am, I'm also trained as a mediator. I used to teach and train other mediators or uh, people to become mediators. Uh, so I ended up um, finding myself in a mediation role um, for a variety of reasons. And we came to an agreement. And the agreement then was that uh, we would circumvent how St. Paul Police was doing their work at that time and uh, have a different approach to these types of cases. And I won't, I won't go into details, but suffice it to say that within that first year, that, that arrest rate dropped significantly, like almost to a single digit. It went from being a very high double-digit number to almost non-existent. And that was because of the, the commitment we all um, made at, you know, at that time, once we reached this agreement, that we would then, as a city, redesign how this type of complaint was being pursued by St. Paul Police and, more importantly, the city attorney's office. Because keep in mind, after the arrest happens, it goes somewhere. It goes either to the city attorney's office or the county attorney's office, depending on the type of charges that are involved. And at that point, uh, the city attorney, then John Choi, who is now, of course, the Ramsey County attorney, has been in that seat for quite some time, uh, played a critical role to say, no, we're not going to continue to do this. We're Not only are the arrests bad, but the charges are as bad as well. And that was a big uh, impact. And I would uh, I would encourage other jurisdictions to to follow suit. Quite honestly, and the the since <clears throat> this has come forward, you know the even though the the chief of police has walked back and recommended to the municipal judge that the charges be be dropped, the damage again is done because we've mm-hmm. already had the the negative encounter that that adds to you know this this air of suspicion the charge is already there if somebody wants to ignore the nuance and circumstances you still have the paper charge that that you know in in, in on record for this incident and he has experienced yet again this thing this this assumed or presumption of, of of suspicion that is not the same it be you know i understand that there are misunderstandings that happen but but loose you you point out so so succinctly the the disproportionality that is the problem here my white peers just do not get this presumption of innocence i mean uh loose you were talking the other day about somebody who was able to just explain away a situation um while, while uh allowing a murder to happen yeah you know it it just there's so many examples of this right I, i'll say very quickly I live in in uh, a suburb outside of St. Paul, and I can easily go across the street and water. And I have my my neighbor's uh, plants, and have never even entertained that that I would be scrutinized in the way that this pastor has been. But even bigger than that is the humiliation that this pastor mm-hmm. has endured. Right, mm-hmm. he himself, his family. And all of us who understand these issues, right, and, and just the re-traumatization that we continue to see on an individual level, but also collectively. Like, 
when does this end? And it, it once was back in the day where you would say, this is unheard of, right? This is unbelievable. But it's not. And, and but for the proliferation of cell phone cameras, this would, in my mm-hmm. mind, continue to occur and be under the radar, but for these, you know, mass cameras everywhere. Everybody much has a camera 24-7 with them to be able to film this, but also social media to elevate it, um, you know, to the awareness so that we all know what's going on. Because otherwise, these things continue to happen because they've been going on for decades and generations. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not new, right? And so it's it a matter of... It only seems new... It only seems new to to white people That's because right. they've never heard of it happening before. But now that, you know, we have cameras and we are trying to get the police to always have their cameras on, like it, it, it's coming out in a way that is very uncomfortable, I think, for, you know, mainstream society to the point where they just say, they, I always hear this. Why don't you just show him your ID? If you're not lying about who you are, just show him, you know, show the police officer your ID. But that's not the point, no. right? The, the <laughs> well, this is the the essence of the know your rights work um, that is a head of the county attorney who was on Counter Stories when we had the Black Men Roundtable. Um, Brother Cassius was was talking about, you know, know your rights work that they're doing because it, it, it that's exactly right, Lee. All the time, my white brothers and sisters get to exercise the the defense of their own rights to say, no, that's not a rule that I know the rights that I have and I don't have to. This assumption of compliance just because somebody who's in a position of power says so is not it, it, it's 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 one not a thing and it's two i want to call the disparity out there are folks who ex, who ex, who exhibit that is know your rights and that and that unwillfulness to comply with things that are not rules that you have to comply with who stand up for their rights all the time and do not get the treatment that our black and brown and indigenous brothers do uh, mm-hmm. And so it, there's an unfairness there. And I think there's some really huge disconnect around this assumption of compliance. Um, we unfortunately have also seen that there are, especially in Minnesota, high profile, because of the video cameras, yes, lose examples of brothers complying and it not being enough. Right. And so if right. you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, let's let's mm-hmm. have let's let's just pres- presume some humanity. Um, and, you know, and I just want to point out that one of the things that Jennings was trying to do was call the owner of the house to get this squared away. What what would be the problem hmm. with taking a breath for a second and allowing a phone call to come in that could that could help lead a situation, let alone somebody's wife coming over to to talk about who they are? I understand that you are already in a situation where you're set up. You know, I don't want to get the public off the hook on this because somebody had to make the call in the first place. We are not mm. disconnected from this. Don't try to scapegoat this officer. But we set him up to follow the same patterns that we've talked about a lot here on Counter Stories. But, you know, it'd be different if this was a burning house and a burning building. What was the immediacy to it? Mm-hmm. He was not He was right. not taking anything. There was, there was no immediacy. And instead of taking the time, as you said, Anthony, and, and actually allowing the pastor... To make the call, um, you have police officers, these in particular, escalating it. Their job is not to escalate. Their job is to de-escalate. And they've been trained on de-escalation efforts and techniques. And there are, de- there are officers around the world who have really understood and mastered what de-escalation techniques for police officers 
look like. But there are pockets across our country that still do not adhere to the de-escalation techniques that they're required to do. And I understand that this happened in Alabama, but um, I agree with you, Luz, on the urgency of this, right? Um, I was in my home and I, I thought I witnessed a, a kidnapping and it was really late at night. Woman was screaming help, uh, forced into a car and they drove up. I called the cops and they didn't show up for an hour and a half. That seemed like an urgent situation. A black guy watering flowers? That doesn't seem like an urgent situation in my mind. Well, you know, please, that I, I love that you brought that up because again, these these bias pieces that presume or start to lay the groundwork, right? We it's what we're speaking to, and, and Luce, you te- you tra- teach and train on this all the time around our our unconscious bias already start. You're 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 creating a ladder of inference the moment you make the call and set up the scenario, quote unquote. And it's it's like a tee up and offering to folks to start following these these patterns that will elevate something that is innocuous or that is that that has time, and and you your wires cross that and put that on the same level as a three alarm fire, right? That escalation is something that we just experience too much. I've been on both. I've been on multiple sides of this. <laughs> the presumption of suspicion. I have also been in, in situations where the moment I open my mouth and I code switch to a vernacular that's that's. Well, for all, I'm just gonna say it. Let's black. Um, I seem to get there's a there's a different ticket. There's an opening, right? And that compliance positioning or posturing itself is problematic for me. That even the fact that I have to navigate that starts to wear on me and drain me throughout the day in ways that other folks don't have to worry about. They don't have to worry about how they come across to somebody with power because there's not even an inkling that that somehow this will end up in this kind of disrespect. You know why? Because in part, Anthony, is <laughs> if you're non-Black, non-Indigenous, non-BIPOC, chances are you're not going to be asked for that information. You're not going to be scrutinized that way, that your word is indeed taken as truth. And that's that's one of the other underlying problems I have here is the discreditation of this, you know, a BIPOC, a black man's word here in particular, and just that and the criminalization, like automatically we don't believe you. And Mm -hmm. there's a presumption that what you are engaged in is criminal in nature, right? So both of those aspects are really critical for, I think, folks to understand that are, again, unique to, but yet very familiar to our black population and our brown and indigenous populations. That's something that'd be foreign to a predominantly white community. Like that's not even an entertainment in their mind. I'm going to give you one last example, right? Again, I I, I told you I live in a suburb, a neighbor on on one side of my house. uh, And this happened a few years ago because uh, her kids are no longer teenagers. She's, uh, they have two teenage, at that point, two teenage boys and one teenage girl. We learn one day in the summer, a few years ago, one of them, we saw the police uh, come up and pull into their driveway, broad daylight. And, you know, they were there in the house for a bit and then they left. And a day or so later, we learned from the neighbor that 
their sons had been picked up along with a couple of other boys in in the suburb for quote unquote joy riding. The boys, none of the boys were ever arrested. None of them were arrested. They were brought home and the conversation was had uh, between the parents and the police officers and it was a warning and they were let go. You tell me where in our society that is even plausible or possible if not in a white house. It's written off as the boys will be boys type of thing and that their parents would be, that's right. you know, uh, would punish them. But they stole a car and were not charged. We're not even arrested, let alone charged. Again, they that's stole the disproportionality, a car. right? Uh, and 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 the same the same folks who would be part of and be like well yeah they just they they what's what's the point in, in getting those kids caught up how many times I've been in situations where somebody would listen to that and go that's what should happen but that same person turns around and says when it's reference to inner city or people of color and doing the same thing same kids same thing there's a differential treatment there's a difference mm-hmm. for the folks who who will mm-hmm. you know it's the difference not only in the eyes of the police but in the eyes of you know. The mainstream community, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, these boys, they're young. They'll learn their lesson. You don't want to have this, you know, they shouldn't have to have this on their record for one mistake. But you say, you know, a black boy does that. Well, he's a thug, right? And, and there's all these other explanations about why he should be punished. What, whereas these white kids, he's a great athlete or, you know, that's kid who the swimmer kid who got away uh, with they come from a good family, quote yes. unquote. They come from a good family. They're quote unquote good kids. Well, you all, know, all, all, um, dog whistle, <laughs> right? All dog whistle well, politics, right there. I tell you what, I have experience being on that side. I have experience being that one kid. There's two, this is, and, I, and the reason I bring these up is, 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 is I think there's there's something to be said here about knowing your community. We know that in many urban communities, uh, the, the police force is made up a lot of people from outside of that community. So there is no connection to say, I know somebody's mom. You know, that in stories that we hear from, from the quaint stories that we hear from certain experiences. But I remember being in and going to visit cousins in predominantly black place, uh, places across the country, uh, particularly in West Virginia and, 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 in, um, <clears throat> and in, in parts of Mississippi and Texas, where the officers were from the neighborhood. They knew everybody in the neighborhood. The fire chief was black. The police chief was black. Everybody black. Tuskegee. This happened with my cousins in Tuskegee, where the force that you encounter not only knows your folks, <laughs> they know the different family names in the community. And I have experience being, you know, doing some knucklehead stuff as a kid and having an officer take me back to a place that I feared more than any jail. And that was grandma's house and auntie's house. Um, but you can only do that if you know folks. I remember folks growing up in the Rondo neighborhood, you had Officer Carter and Officer Brown who knew folks in the area. And so they could squash something before it even gets into this big legal thing because they're going to take you to your mom and have you face them or your dad or your uncle or whoever. And and it's going to get handled in a way that that is not trying to kind of faster on-ramp you for 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 smaller petty things, but it's so few far in between, right? Those are examples of, of a handful of folks and a whole force. How many times have I been the opposite side of that? You know, and so 
it, it's it. I think there's a, there's 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 also speaks to something here around you know being able to know your community and be able to make decisions that don't get. I, I want more kids to have that Mayberry experience you just described, Luce. <laughs> I really wish more kids did. What we shouldn't um, lose track of is the consequence of even complying, right? So George mm. Floyd, right? Even if Pastor Jennings were to have complied, he would still be at risk in terms of his personal safety and his life. So, I mean, it's, it's, you can't win is my point. <laughs> damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> On that inspirational note. <laughs> well, I mean. <laughs> but, but it's reality. It is reality. I, I yeah. totally see it. It, it, it is reality. Unfortunately. And, and it's a setup for everybody involved. Our society has set up Pastor Jennings. It's set up the officer in that situation. And in, in many parts, let's go ahead and own it in a communal sense. It's the 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 neighbor set it up, the first initial call. Uh, uh, as, as we think about these interactions between those who are called to be put into situations, we constantly have to navigate how we how we deal with that. And we've actually got another, uh, uh, something else has happened locally. Judge Wilhelmina Wright, has recently ruled in a lawsuit that it that um, uh, authorities cannot destroy the equipment as they remove folks from these homeless encampments around the city. The lawsuit alleges that Hennepin County, the city of Minneapolis, um, and specific officials conducted sweeps um, in the defendants mm-hmm. and seized and destroyed the property of persons experiencing unsheltered homelessness who live in encampments in Minneapolis parks. Um, Judge Wilhelmina Wright's decision um, prevents fo- the property from being destroyed. In many cases, which is the only property that those folks have to even s- survive. Uh, well, I I don't understand why. I mean, I I this ruling came down, which is a good ruling, but why in the first place was it like, you know, oh these folks have nowhere to go. Let's take everything they have and throw it away. That never seemed logical. To me, anyway, why was that a, a practice that was going on? It's a it it seemed it's a no empathy practice in my mind to to look at a group of folks who ha- have have to live in this encampment because they have nowhere else to go, and then have everything that you collected taken away from you. And that could have been your shelter. That's your tent, right? That's your shelter. Not only is it inhumane, it's I mean not a. <laughs> It's also, it's denying the humanity of the individuals there, right? And that's been mm-hmm. consistent, is denying the humanity, refusing to see the humanity of various populations, again, BIPOC populations in our communities, where, to your point, both of you, is this is, when you are unhoused, it means that whatever belongings and property, as as modest as they may be, is on your person, meaning you are carrying them with you or carrying them in a cart of some sort, and that's all you have. Unlike the rest of us who actually have a shelter and you leave your stuff there and it's there when you come back, right? Um, and to, to to see that that's all they have to their name and that's going to be destroyed and taken by either here, in this case, it was the city or the park board for the city, uh, or the county and any of the the three entities that were named in the federal class action um, is just another consistent 
pattern that we have seen in dehumanizing BIPOC folks. And this, this is the worst of the worst in my mind because it's the most vulnerable population that we can think of when you are unhoused and all the needs that you have, um, personal needs, hygiene needs, basic food. You don't even have basic housing because you are unhoused and you're in an encampment outside, um, weathering, you know, the inclement weather that we have is just um, unbelievable. Well, you know, one of the things that I find interesting in this is that the ruling, you know, says that, yes, it's, it's, you know, by law, you know, the, the authorities have the right to, to move you, move the camps, to remove the camps and evict the folks that are there once the eviction notices are put forward, but you can't destroy their stuff. To me, we're, we're having a conversation in a fight <laughs> that's ignoring root cause, right? And it's, again, to me, just like the 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 call the nine one one caller who even got the the um, uh, Pastor Jennings in the previous conversation, this again we're we're throwing officers, we're throwing law enforcement, we're throwing a system that's already shown that it's got a lot of work to do on these on these biases into yet another confrontation situation without addressing the root cause in the first place. Um, you know, the fact that these folks are unhoused in the first place should be, you know, it, we wouldn't have to worry about this ruling if we had housing for folks. And we don't seem mm -hmm. to want to marshal together to tackle the root cause problem and only want to talk about the symptomatic piece that's a setup for everybody involved. It's it's um, making our... Uh, our community look pretty but not addressing anything underneath the surface right it's like okay let's get everybody out of these encampments that are on main streets like franklin avenue you know stuff like that like everybody can see it let's get rid of it so everything looks nice but they haven't actually addressed what brought folks to to that encampment in the first place and in this situation you know these encampments aren't all full of BIPOC people either. So, you know, th this dehumanizing is just across the board of a lot. I think a lot of people, and I hear this a lot when I worked at a, uh, with a clinic, a local community clinic, was that uh, we, had a home, um, we had a program that uh, went out to uh, areas where we know, knew there were encampments and we had nurses and doctors that would go out you know, two or three times a week at 6 a.m. And so a, a lot of the things that we hear from folks who, who don't work in that field or who don't know people who work in that field is that those are druggies. Those are people who deserve it. Those people, you know, um, you can't, you shouldn't help them because they're just going to use it on drugs and alcohol. And, and, and that kind of stigma has just stuck to it where even to the point where I feel like the police think the same thing. And so they, they feel like they have the right to treat people that way. You know, there's also a double standard there, though, Haley, where mainstream society will humanize a white addict but criminalize a black addict. An addict is an addict. Mm -hmm. They need help. They need chemical dependency treatment. They need mental health treatment. They need support. And so we can't continue to have this divide on how we treat people in need based on their skin color. Mm -hmm. you, you know, mm -hmm. Luce, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, as we as we connect the dots here with the disparate treatment, yet again, we see how this connects to that that disparate treatment space. Um, in in uh, uh, when we look at the statistics from 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 charging uh, in terms of who gets referred to treatment, 
you had talked about in a previous mm-hmm. segment um, a huge disparity for even the referrals for some of the things. One of the major things uh, that make folks get into into an unhoused situation are mental health and, and, and drug addiction and, 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 and the need for treatment and things like that. But you had talked about the fact that that people of color, um, uh, or excuse me, that, that our white peers are referred to treatment programs versus uh, jail or other, other time at r- rates very different than people of color. Is that is that still hold true? Yeah, I think it depends on the jurisdiction. Okay. Um, so, so yes, I think in heavily populated urban areas where there uh, are more, but it's a really complicated scenario and and set of circumstances because here, at least in Minnesota, the state agency that is entrusted with that care. Um, is funded by the legislature. And so it's tied to how the legislature then prioritizes funds for these programs and decides how much funding goes out to be able to extend these services. And then it gets even more complicated when someone is picked up for jail and they present in a way that they're either a danger to themselves or a danger to the to society and can't be released. And, you know, normally if you are in jail and then you can post bond and then you're released until your trial or your hearing comes up, mostly your hearing, you can't do that if you've been assessed that you are a danger to yourself or to society because of either mental health issues or chemical dependency issues or combination of the two. Then that becomes a big issue because due to COVID, there's a big backlog uh, of people waiting for those services and to be transferred from a jail, which is considered to be punitive in nature, to a treatment facility that is viewed as curative in nature, right? You're there to improve your health, both from the, for the, from the addiction, but also mental health and get treatment for that. So you have this very complex set of circumstances where the injustices just continue to to increase incrementally and and before you know it you have just a a a big in my mind a twine of of difficult set of cir- circumstances that you pull on on a string and it starts to unravel right and that so mm-hmm. much of it can't be done at the local level uh, because it's a state issue that requires sufficient funding and that funding needs to come from the legislature, but the legislature is so polarized um, along partisan divides that it makes it that much more difficult to get some of these appropriation requests through for funding to be adequate to serve these needs. It sounds like we're going to need to have a, a, a good kind of stories conversation around that. The, the, the reason the reason that I ask is because, you know, this this, you know, as we try to help folks understand how interconnected these various issues that we talk about on counter stories are, I think it's important to show that, you know, what what tees up having a disproportionately um, uh Black, brown, and indigenous uh, groups represented in in this, and even its encampment story, even in the 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 Pastor Jennings story, uh, is because we are of these connections and these nuanced pieces that tee us up to not one, not only be in these groups, uh, but 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 two, to to be in proximity to the the 
the conflicts that we have with with law enforcement, right? Uh, to me, again, this all speaks to the big a, a big setup. We are we are going to encounter this disparity because we aren't changing the systems that create them, and that's the thing that's hard to get folks to to talk about beyond talking points. Having health insurance connected to a job doesn't make sense to me. I see when I was working with the clinic, you know, even though it was a sliding fee or free services, like we didn't turn anybody away. Um, but folks who who didn't have insurance, it there's only so many of these clinics around for them to go to. And a lot of these the time, these clinics are underfunded and don't have the capacity for mental health services. And so even though, you know, People are saying, well, you know, Catholic Charities and this clinic and that clinic, they're very few, far and few in between. And even getting there, I mean, that was the biggest thing that we heard from our patients was like, getting here is really hard if you're you're not on a bus line. Like, we can't even get there to get the services we need and then not having health insurance. I mean, we offer the service of like, oh, we'll help you, you know, try to um, apply for Medicare, Medicaid, and that kind of stuff. But there's only so many caseworkers. I mean, it's just so underfunded. And yet people think, okay, let's just, you know, on the surface, remove the encampments. And so everything is fine now. We don't we don't have to think about it anymore because we don't see it anymore. And, and take us to somebody who's who's had the experience of having your stuff destroyed by a landlord, having to be pushed out of a place that you couldn't afford, just trying to survive, um, and being in a space where we're living um, and, and sleeping at night outside or on the street. I've been there. I've done that. And to have all of the last vestiges of your possessions destroyed as a final lifeline, I mean, can you? I, I can't describe what that does to the psyche, especially as you're trying to get back onto your feet, and then you keep getting hit with these other things. You know, mm-hmm. as much as we can point to all the things that are going around, there, there there are some things happening around us that may be pointing to some light cracks in uh, in the foundation of this thing. Um, and so I, I want to move us to to another thing that popped up in our grag bag, and that is this, this uh, coming student loan forgiveness uh, from the bill that uh, President Biden has put on the table. Is this some silver, some some light in the tunnel as we look at all the ways in which we keep finding disparity and challenges? Is this uh, a little brightness coming through, y'all? What do you think? It's um, I think a a lot of um, there's some weariness, right? I mean, this is something that's been talked about for several several years. And after Biden had his press conference where he announced all this, like my siblings on, on our group chat was going to like, OK, how can I get this done? When when can I get this done? What are the ways, you know, that I that this will help me? And, and a, a few of my siblings was like that 10 grand would eliminate all of their student debt, you know, and it's such a big deal. I mean, they all have great paying jobs, but they all have kids, uh, not but but like. And they all have kids. So, they, yes. And they all have kids. They, <laughs> and they all have kids. They need <laughs> this support. And even though, you know, I went to, I was fortunate enough to go to college on um, a full scholarship, but I took out some loans to pay for books and that kind of stuff. And even though I, I've paid off my student loans, I'm not going to be one of those people who are standing here going, no, 
you should have thought about that before you took a loan out. Well, we don't all have the opportunity to to go to college without loans, right? But there's this there's also this this argument going around that well, I had to do it. I had to pay off my loans, so you should have to do it as well. And I don't like that that mentality. I should say when you talk about canceling um, the package. Um, uh, the reforms to the federal student loan system for future students will cancel up to ten thousand or twenty thousand for Pell Grant recipients. That's the Pell Grant is the income based grant program that ha- tries to get low income and first time college students into college. And this is for individuals making less than one hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year. And the reason I just put that forward is, you know, there's there's a lot of folks who fall in that category. There's a lot. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this 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 is a huge deal for some folks, especially. For, for for our communities. I appreciate you you clarifying that for, for our listeners because there's been so much incomplete information but also misinformation that's been shared. This whole hullabaloo of you got to pay off your student loans because I had to pay off my student loans mindset that's out there. I agree with you, Haley. I completely disagree with that. And I think there are a number of reasons in my mind why it's wrong. Uh, first and foremost is that's more of an individualist mindset than a collectivist. And mm-hmm. as a collectivist, I, it's my firm belief that the rising tides, uh, rise all, you know, lift all boats, right? So why not make sure that we all are in a better position if, if we can put folks in a better position? Folks who are in that mindset are losing track or perhaps choose not to consider the number of subsidies that our current uh, government is extending in the private sector to banks, mm-hmm. uh, to folks or companies that are making chips, you know, in light of the pandemic and, and the difficulty in getting chips. The pharmaceutical industry, for sure, big oil, big banks, big agriculture, um, defense contractors, for sure, aerospace, the list goes on and on. So, and those are millions and billions of dollars in subsidies, right? My next point goes to the GI Bill. We know that when the GI Bill was um, passed and, and implemented, it created the largest middle class uh, in the U.S. ever, historically speaking, right? And it basically made attending college virtually free. But let's not forget that it largely excluded black veterans. And we've covered that point over and over in past segments, right? Uh, and the, the return on investment at that point was $7 for every $1 that was um, provided through that measure, right? Tuition, the next point is tru- tuition has tripled since 1975, mm-hmm. resulting then in these skyrocketing debts that are, are g- being uh, carried by students. But then I also want to just get down to the points that we usually and often talk about in helping our listeners connect the dots on systemic racism. I mean, there's some really dog whistle politics going on. There's a video out by Demos that really does a nice job. Um, it shows Lee Atwater's uh, speech at, at a particular event. Lee Atwater, for those who don't recall, was one of Ronald Reagan's strategists. Uh, And he said in the speech, look, we can't use the N-word anymore, but we got to keep making sure that we stay on track, basically. So we're going to start saying and using other words. And and again, this is where dog whistle politics comes in. Um, 
began talking about states' rights, and, and that is the states' rights to resist integration of, of a particular set of order or, or uh, schemes uh, and laws that are ordered by the federal government. Another um, dog whistle word is, you know, uh, forced uh, busing, right? It wasn't forced bus. It was about integration. The byproduct of all of these measures that I mentioned is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. Um, and when we're talking about busing, you know, all the, the, the messaging there was, you know, we've got to fear people of color. Um, we've got to, you know, hate the government when we're talking about states' rights. We've got to trust the market, you know, that the private industry, the private market will work for everyone's benefit when we know it doesn't. And, and the, uh, this ideology that has really scared whites about integrated public education, right? So then the attack comes to, well, if you're going to follow this line of thinking uh, that Lee Atwater led on, particularly cutting taxes, where do you think most of the tax cutting is taking place? Well, it's taking place to uh, in the public education sphere, whether it is grade schools or colleges or universities, right? Uh, in terms of public funding, um, and seeing then that the amount of cuts that have come to public institutions, in particular public colleges, um, it's average, I looked it up, 25% have been cut, the funding, since the 1990s for every dollar uh, that was previously spent. So, of course, that's a big change. That's a big cut in funding overall to public colleges, 25%. Well, that's not going to go away, and that then is shifted onto the burden um, to the schools. They then raise and triple their tuition. And again, I looked that up. They did triple, largely speaking, across the country, the tuition rates, which then makes it harder for students to attend. If they're going to attend, they incur higher debt by way of loans, which if you are stuck with the massive student loan debt, then it makes it harder to buy a house which in our society is the greatest indicator of the transfer of wealth. And it certainly makes it almost impossible to begin to save for retirement. PPP loans. So these are the, uh, these loans were, were given to businesses and entities and individuals across society during the height of the pandemic. Well, 20% of these PPP loans had been forgiven for, um, the wealthiest. So 20% mm -hmm. of the wealthiest exactly. folks. Mm. have benefited from that. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then my my last point here is with regard to wages in our in our society. In 1975, the hourly minimum wage was six dollars and fifty cents. I mean, that is almost 50 years ago, and we are at 725 an hour almost 50 years later at the federal level. And in Minnesota, it's ten dollars and thirty three cents an hour for large organizations. Um, and of course, uh, less than that, $8.42 an hour for uh, folks who are under employees who are under the age of 18. Now, if we were to look at what the inflation rate would be and should be on a minimum wage, it's $21.50. It would be in order to, to keep up with inflation and begin to afford the things that people were affording nearly 50 years ago, it should be at $21.50 an hour. And we're nowhere near that. 
I mean, we we can't and, even get up to fifteen without people throwing a big fit, right? The, there's right. there's this thing. The value of today's federal minimum wage, and I looked this up, is the lowest it's been in sixty six years since nineteen fifty six. Just put your mind around that, right? So, but if we think about the the lawmakers that we send to DC, <laughs> what what they paid for college is so much different than what we're paying for college now. Okay, let me just say <laughs> Absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you just, again, all of these patterns underscore some of the challenges with even though it's great that we have this student debt, uh, a student loan, uh, student debt forgiveness, and, and we've talked about how the impact has on our families, we want to make sure folks understand that this does not do anything to address mm-hmm. the gaps so you know this this is a one a singular income based um uh measure and so it does not address the gap all folks have access to this at certain income levels and so if while while it's a boon for everybody and and for the reasons that we've said in our communities it does not do anything to close mm-hmm. any gaps and that's one of the things that folks have were hoping for that there would be some mechanisms in place that address the years of discrimination the 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 systems and patterns that you have already spoken to um, this doesn't do that there's one you know just an income based um <clears throat> measure does not necessarily close disparity and that needs to be had in thought about as we talk about this loan forgiveness that's happening here. Um, Andre Andre Perry of the Brookings Institute in Metro talks about this. Um, you know, it doesn't it, it doesn't take into account wealth. It's just an income base. So if we're actually talking about something that adjusts wealth, you know, folks have been trying to put this forward as a, a wealth gap uh, addressing thing. Eh, slow your roll. It does not necessarily do that for some very key reasons connected to what you all have shared about. There's a thing on going around like a meme or someone tweeted, um, I don't own a farm, but I paid to bail them out. I never used AIG, Cedar Group of Bear Stearns, but I paid to bail them out. I didn't own a house in 2008, but I paid to bail out Fannie Mae and Fannie Mac. And that's because a lot of folks are saying this is a bailout. We're bailing people out. You know, you're not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps type of situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, Laura Ingram, um, the political analyst lady, was like, my mom worked as a waitress until she was 60-something years old to pay for, for our college. So you want everybody's mom to be a waitress until they're elderly to pay for college? A couple of things that really annoy me also is it, what you said, Luz, is is the work environment that we have now, right? Typically, it, you, after six months after you graduate, you have to have to start paying back your student loans. Well, the problem is, and I and I just talked to a girl who just recently graduated. You know, she's she can't find a job. Uh, the jobs that she's been applying for require fifteen years of experience for an entry level into her field. So that six months really doesn't give you a whole lot. Also, I mean, the, just the, the I when I was in college, I worked three jobs all the time to make ends meet. And I, w- I don't want to force that on other people, you know? And so being able to, to have this sort of uh, forgiveness, I think it's, it's so crucial for folks who, who know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. And when you don't, it just doesn't seem like a big deal to you. And it goes back to the empathy. 
Like, I just feel like there's no empathy in this country anymore. And I'm, I'm so, so glad you said that because that, that's, that's part of what we've been talking about this whole entire time is that we seem to, is, is that missing piece? I'm glad you, you singled that out. You know, we also are losing sight of the systemic issue here, which is why as a country do we continue to have these universities charge the amount of tuition that they're charging. And, and, and I, I say that in a very, <laughs> um, in a way that I, I know the answer, right? It, it, it's mm-hmm. rhetorical in nature yeah. is what I want to get to, <laughs> you know, based on what I just said uh, previously in terms of the data that I shared. And I, and I, I, my, the basis for my statement comes from the fact that there are countries around the world that do not charge uh, for tuition, right? And in fact, there are 24 countries that provide college education at no cost. Not only to, some of them are only to their residents, but some of them include for international exchange students as well. So there are 16 of those countries that provide free tuition um, in Europe, three in South America, one in North America, one in Asia, and three in Africa, right? So now we've got U.S. students traveling abroad to get either low-cost or free tuition. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I mean, come on. Let's mm-hmm. figure this out, folks. Let's figure this out. How- but we can't, though. We can't figure it out because the, the, the income gap in this country, that would put a lot of us, you know, on the same level leaving college, right? We're on the same playing field leaving college, and they can't have that. See, this is the thing. We are one of those parents, Luz. We are going to be one of those parents. We have already had this conversation. When we look at what it costs to send our kids, right, we're dealing with this loan issue. And and yes, we've got this loan forgiveness that's coming in that's going to be helpful. Great. However, however, we've had that conversation with our kids. Like, why, why, why pay all this money when, when $10,000... <laughs> $7,000 in one of the cases we looked at, as long as they get into the school, going to college overseas. The, the language gains, the, the international global experience gains, the fact that college is way, way cheaper. And we're not talking, and, and, and the universities, you know, while we have an issue, seem to be recognizing the expertise of universities outside of our country. The rest of the world don't. <laughs> and so we are one of those parents. We have fully planned at this point, unless these kids get a full ride like No, I had to pay. You, I mean... I got Pell Grant. I had I, I had a Pell Grant in undergrad. You had um, to pay, <laughs> and a little bit in law school. But we, I took a list. I was a Go diversity uh, scholarship. So, <laughs> got you. So if they don't get one of them, they gonna be in in one of these other countries getting their education, and we gonna have a global international experience while they're in college. Like that's our plan. To your point, Luz. Like literally, I have aunts and uncles who you know, are getting their kids into sports real young, like getting real serious <laughs> about different sports because they're like, that's the only way that we're going to be able to afford to send my son to, to college is if he gets, you know, a soccer scholarship. And they're really banking on that. Now, there is a silver lining to that, though, Lee, because, you know, one of the th- one of the most fastest growing um, uh, areas of agreement kind of across our political sectors have to do with some of the technical trade and and community colleges across the country. There is a trend of states who are are basically beginning to either implement or treat uh, free college all the way up to treat it more like K-12. 
all the mm-hmm. way up to mm-hmm. college degree areas. And so even right now in the state of Minnesota, for some of our students, we, we've, we've got a, a, a track that will allow you to either get a bunch of school done while you're in school or mm-hmm. um, to at least go to, to community colleges or, or state technical colleges, have a free track to do so. More and more states are jumping on board with this. And so there may be a silver lining as you hedge your bets, as your family heads their bets against the sports programs. Um, there was a there was a lot of kids in high in, when I was in high school, which was quite some time ago now, that did the the post secondary going to college, taking college classes at you know St. Paul um, mm. Tech. The problem was I could never do that because I didn't have a transportation method. Well, yeah, there you I go. didn't you have a car. Intersecting problems. We <laughs> didn't. Yeah, we. I didn't have a car to take me in the middle of the day to this to the college campus. And my parents didn't have the, you know, capability because they worked during the day to come pick me up and take me. So I always, even in in high school, the kids that were able to do that, I always thought they must be so much better off than my family. They 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 you know they may have a hoopty car, but they still got a car, right? And yeah. I'm like walking my butt and trying to take the bus everywhere. Yeah, I had the luxury of, of being in walking distance to the PSEO options. But mm, yeah, I mean, nice. that, those are those intersections though, right? Like it, it, we, we can't ever just talk about one thing. Like even one area and bright spot comes with all of the nuances that connect to this, especially a workforce that that doesn't set you up to be, even be able to address student loans in the first place. So the, the interconnectedness, again, we have not yet solved our question around our empathy and our humanity uh, towards some of the most basic things in our life. And we want to we want to fight about them. There are still folks who are looking at this and are trying to characterize it as some kind of woke policy. And I'm bringing that up because of our last conversation around how people are weaponizing, con- you know, getting more conscious or aware of these nuances. You know, but, but as we connect all the things that we talked about so far, if you were to say, <laughs> if you were to take a look and say, all right, what is one thing that you would do um, or that you practice? Let me ask that question, right? So what's one thing that you practice that tries to keep you centered on that empathy question that y'all have raised throughout all of our segments today? What's a practice that you do that keeps you in that empathetic space? Hmm. I mean, I think I think for me, and Anthony and you and I talked a little bit about this last time we saw each other, it was growing up poor. You know, my my parents were, were refugees. We we had nothing. We didn't speak the language. I mean, that really like stuck in my my brain, and it still does. I was so afraid of debt. Like my biggest fear was to be in debt. That in in high school, I worked my butt off. I did all the extracurriculars. I did the IB classes. I did all of that because I was like, I don't want to be in debt going to college. And I worked that hard. And then I worked all those jobs during college because I, I didn't want to be. And that was my biggest fear because I had seen how my my family struggled. So for me, you know, that I always come back to I don't I may not know you. I may not know your situation, but I have to have empathy for you because you might be in the same situation I was at one time. Come on. I agree with you, Lee. Uh, um I often reflect, and and I, I've said this um, just even today out loud to someone, uh, there but for the grace of God go I. I 
I am that child. I am that student um, that is similarly situated with the folks on the receiving end of this law. Growing up inner city Chicago without health insurance, living in the barrio, um, you know, five kids in a two bedroom apartment. Well, one bedroom is for the parents. So you do the math and how the five kids then, you know, uh, were able to, to sleep in, in that apartment. The three girls slept in one bedroom together and then the boys slept on the couch. Each, uh, had, um, you know, a couch and they were not pullout couch if they were just the couch or the floor. And that's our, and the first time I ever had health insurance was after, um, undergrad and actually after uh, a health scare in law school that, uh, the Dean pulled me aside and said, Hey, you should get health insurance. And I, I truthfully said, I don't know what that is. I've, I've never had it in my life. Um, as, and by that point, you know, you're a grown adult. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I turned to that, my lived experiences, to inform my judgment. I also turned to, med- uh, to meditation. I meditate every day, um, at least three times, sometimes four, four times a day. And it really grounds you. It really grounds you in terms of uh, your values and not only your humanity, but extending that same grace and humanity to others. Uh, but what, what comes up for you, Anthony, and, and, and your question? I think in a similar way, we've all had these experiences. I've had these experiences and I shared earlier about my own experience being unhoused and, 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 and walking through those, trying to figure out how to, eat, how, to, how to feed yourself, how to feed your family. I've experienced hunger in ways that many folks won't ever do. And so, you know, the, the, the <clears throat> experiential piece of it is one thing. But for me, it's to be able to put myself into the shoes and think often about what it's like to walk um, in that person's shoes, what it's like to be the person receiving into the negative outcomes here. I've seen a lot of us um, talking about and, 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 and trying to, to talk about what somebody should have done and where somebody should be because they don't have what you have, right? And so somehow we apply that to somebody's character. But if, I'm, if I put myself in a space of walking and understanding and getting a chance to see all the intricacies of those experiences that you do to survive day in and day out, I have a very different mental model that comes up. It's a lot harder for me to look at you with suspicion when I'm in relationship with you, when I actually have relationships. I think often of the folks who will say these things about what people of color should or should not be doing, who will have no friends or no people of color that are even in their circles, right? And, and, and have no understanding of what it means to walk in those shoes. That's the thing that comes up for me. And that keeps me in a space of even for folks who show me some racial disconsciousness, Having d- that practice allows me to even walk in the shoes of somebody who's showing me their disconsciousness, their unawareness, um, and even understand how they have arrived at where they have arrived at. It, it, it forces a different interaction in my mind, and it's the thing that keeps me grounded towards empathy. And for, for, for as we talk about these things, you know, this grab bag episode, how are we understanding and connecting each other and experiencing our humanity with each other is at question. It was Nelson Mandela who said that for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. And indeed, we can't enhance the freedom of others if we're not even willing to walk in their shoes. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at Dendros Group. 
I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've stated are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. Thank you all for listening. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the Other Media Group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. <laughs>